Welcome to the FX Church Podcast. We're glad you have chosen to tune in and listen. Uh, we are in our summer series in the book of Joshua. This is our fourth week, and the series is entitled Inheritance. And um, it, it's the idea of God giving His people His inheritance. God makes precious promises, and He tells us what we can expect, but He doesn't hide from us. And right now, we are in an inheritance battle in our culture. Who gets what, and who deserves what, and and the terms are honestly up in the air, but with God, the terms of His inheritance are set. The question is, will we embrace them, or will we try to demand new terms? And that's what we see so often in the world around us. And we can find ourselves in waiting like God's people were at this time when we drop into this Old Testament book of Joshua. They had been waiting 600 years for the promised inheritance of Abraham, that God told Abraham he would make his descendants as many as the stars and the heavens and the seas on the shore and give them a land, the land of Canaan. And his people lived in slavery for 400 years. They just got done wandering for 40 years in a desert and watching an entire generation die off. And now they're clinging to a promised inheritance that they probably wouldn't see in their lifetime all the while being told to be strong and courageous through all of that, the 600 years, the 400 years, and the 40 years. And now we find them crossing the Jordan River, getting ready to go into the land of their inheritance, and there is a battle in front of them, a battle for the inheritance. Would we still believe and lead others to believe that that Yahweh saves, that that's what the name Joshua means, that He is our Savior, that He will fulfill His promised inheritance. In Joshua 1.5 or 1.6, there's a verse that says, be strong and courageous for you will distribute the land I swore to their fathers to give them as an inheritance. God tells Joshua, it's going to take strength and courage in me. You're going to have to trust me that I'll do this. You're going to need to follow me to make it happen. And you have to trust that, that I'll give you this land, but it's not fully yet. And there's a process of us getting ready to to move into the land. This week, Joshua is faced with a dilemma. We'll read this in a moment where he comes to an encounter with someone. And Joshua asks the question, are you for us or our enemies? Are you for us or our enemies? And the person answers, neither. I'm not for you and I am not for your enemies. And right now we live in a culture where everybody's trying to get you on their side. Every political battle, ethnic battle, it's always about picking sides, choosing sides. Are you with us or not? And and when this question's asked, the answer is, I'm neither. See, all the belief systems of the world are trying to get God and others to be for their belief system by works, trying to make our good outweigh our bad so we can get people to to be on our side. But see, with God, when we realize that He is God and that He is for His own glory and Himself, and that that's a good thing, that we need Him to be God and to teach us how to live life. We need Him to restore the world that's broken. When we realize that, we understand that God gives us His grace. That's His unmerited favor that we can't earn. That when we recognize the 
like we talked about last week, the awe, the fear of God and knowledge of Him, we recognize that it's all about who He is and His grace. And His grace, by His work, what He has done to save His people and to to send a Messiah, a Yahweh saves, is available to anyone, that He makes His grace available to all. Embracing it brings an unbelievable, imperishable inheritance And rejecting it brings severe consequences. In Joshua 4, as we wrapped up last week in verse 24, it says that this is so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. He said, that's why I stopped the Jordan River. You can go back and listen to that, but they crossed the Jordan River. The Jordan River stopped. It flooded all the way upstream. It was to declare to God or to declare God to others and to his people who he was. And he wanted the people of the earth to see what it was like to fear God and know him and then declare your allegiance to him. In Joshua 5.1, we pick up the story. It says, when all the Amorite kings across the Jordan to the west and all the Canaanite kings near the sea heard how the land had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, They lost heart and their courage failed because of the Israelites. You see, the land that the Israelites are going into, they they knew, the people there knew that this God had promised this land to these Israelites. They, They had been watching them and hearing about them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They had been warned for 40 years. They knew about the promises and the covenants going back. And 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 now the people have crossed and they're having to face the fact that these powerful people with a God that does amazing things is coming at them. So do you abandon your gods and believe in that God? Truly believe in him? Do you try to make a deal? Do you you fight? Like this is decision time right now for these Amorite kings and these Canaanite kings in the land that God has promised. And they had a decision. They could have chosen to leave. They, they could have chosen to say, you know what? We believe that the God of Israel is coming, and so we're going to move outside the promised land. The rest of the world, God had not promised. He had only promised the promised land at this point. They could have moved and been spared. They could have repented and come and said, we repent. We, we ask you to, to be our God. We, we surrender. We will leave our gods in our ways. They could have done that. Rahab did that, which we'll see today in in the city of Jericho, she surrendered her life to the Yahweh who saves, the God who saves. Or they could choose to stay and suffer the wrath of God. You see, we have choices. It's not like we're without choices and the consequences of those choices change things. Had these Amorite and Canaanite kings surrendered, it would have meant an entire change in their entire lifestyle. They couldn't do things the way they used to do them because their gods dominated especially Baal and Asherah, dominated their lives. And they would have had to redo, rethink, and become different people. And so now we have them panicked. Now here's the question. If you were God's people, what, what would you do knowing that these Amorite and Canaanite kings are panicked because of you? What would be your response to go into battle and take the promised land? You see, what God asks is pretty amazing. What God asks is to to do something that basically declares that I'm not for you and I'm 
not for your enemies. I'm for me and the covenant, the promises that I have made all the way back to Abraham and those promises being kept. And so in Joshua 2, 5, it says, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelite men again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelite men at Gibbeth, Haraloth. So they're ready for battle. The, The army across is panicked and scared. And God chooses right now. Remember, they've already consecrated themselves, which is the declaration, the verbal declaration before they crossed the Jordan. They consecrated and said, we're with God. We're with Joshua. We'll do this. They, they consecrated. Now, once they verbally gave their, their word, now they have to do something, a sign, a symbol. And that symbol, according to the Old Testament, was circumcision. Circumcision is where you cut the foreskin of the male anatomy, and you cut it away and you throw it. This would have been hundreds of thousands of men, warriors. This isn't what you do to warriors when they're getting ready to go fight. They're going to have to recover. You're weakening your army. But see, that's what God does. God weakens us so we don't fight in our own strength and we're not bold and courageous or strong, courageous in our own strength, but in His strength. And so this would have been an incredible act of faith to fulfill this covenant, to declare by circumcision and to open yourself up to God. And this would have been crazy to the nations around them and to others. Like, What are they doing? You see, the other nations, the men didn't hurt themselves. They hurt others. They hurt the women and the children. Those were the ones that had to, to suffer. But see, God says, no, I put the sin on man and man's choosing to not follow me. And so man is responsible. The men are responsible for this. So they will be the ones that have to be cut. They'll be the ones that bleed on behalf of the nation. You know, and if you know anything about this, these are flint knives. These aren't surgical tools. Have you ever seen an arrowhead, a flint knife? Like, oh my goodness, to do this would have been publicly humiliating. It would have been miserable. It To get men to do this, they would have had to be committed. I mean, holy smokes. But this is what God does, is he asks them to humble themselves. That The risk of infection in that day would have been unheard of. But God says, will you trust me? This is like the worst battle plan ever, unless, unless you really believe that God is for himself and not for you or your enemies. Do you do what God asks you to do, even though it may be painful at times? In verse 4, it goes on and says, this is the reason Joshua circumcised him. So he gives the reason why this was so important to do. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness along the way after they had come out of Egypt. So they've been in Egypt, or they've been in the wilderness 40 years. That entire generation died off. Though all the people who came out were circumcised out of Egypt, None of the people born in the wilderness. So they came out of Egypt and they had a circumcision event to declare allegiance to God. None of the people born in the wilderness along the way were circumcised after they had come out of Egypt. For the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until all the nation's men of war who came out of Egypt had died off because they did not obey the Lord. Verse, moving on, it says, So the Lord vowed never to let them see the land he had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Joshua raised up their sons in their place. So it's an inheritance. The old generation was to raise up their sons as an inheritance to go and take the promised land. It was these Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised since they had not been circumcised along the way. After the entire nation had been circumcised, they stayed where they were in the camp until they recovered. And the Lord then said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the disgrace of Egypt from you. Therefore that place is now called Gilgal to this day. And Gilgal means the rolling away, the cutting away. And see, we know that circumcision was a symbol of what God was trying to get his people to see about their heart, that their heart was so hard and so protected and so rolled up that he needed to do surgery and cut away the the dead flesh, the rotting flesh. He needed to cut away the flesh so that we could have a spirit of his, not a flesh of our own. And that he rolls back, he rolls away the curse and gives an inheritance. He opens us up for greater feeling and intimacy. I know this is like almost vulgar to go through this, but this is what God chose to show that I'm for you. I'm for me. In Deuteronomy, we know this is what God wanted because in Deuteronomy 10, when when Moses is laying out the law and talking about circumcision, this is what he says in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 10. It says, Yet the Lord was devoted to your fathers and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the people as it is today. So God gave an offer to Israel and they responded. Then in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 10, he says, Therefore circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. Man, if that isn't an imagery I don't want to think about, but that's this is God's using the sexual imagery because he knows that that's the thing that derails more people is, is the sexual flesh that we won't put him in authority over our sexuality and our sex lives. And so he, he lays this out pretty clearly. And in verse 17, he says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. I love this. He says, look, you can't get me to be for you. You can't earn my favor. You can't get me to be against your enemies. That's not what this is about. It's about me and me offering a relationship and a covenant and your simple response to say, go ahead and cut away the the, the life I think I deserve. and, And I give my life to you. I put my life in your hands. That's what circumcision one, you look in Deuteronomy 30, verse five, it says, the Lord, your God will bring you into the land of your fathers, your fathers possessed. You will take possession of it. That's what this promise in Deuteronomy, this word that's given in Deuteronomy to Moses is now being fulfilled in Joshua. This is, Joshua is the fulfillment of this Deuteronomy 30 passage. And then it goes on to say in Deuteronomy 35, he will cause you to prosper and multiply you more than he did your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. I love this pick imagery. It's, it's God's going to do the circumcision. He's going to to cut away so that we can really, it's kind of gross, but imagery like truly feel who he is and know who he is. Why does God pick this imagery? Well, one of the main reasons is because the nations around them 
Phallic symbols have been through all nations in history. When you look at nations rising up and rising down, you find the phallic symbol, the male anatomy symbol in almost every religion and culture, except Christianity and Judaism. It was a detestable thing to have that symbol. And yet God says, I'm going to tear that symbol. Take oh, That symbol is going to be a symbol that when you see the phallic symbol in any other culture around you, you remember my covenant that I made with you. I mean, what a powerful imagery that God gives because he loves his people and he doesn't want them to be trapped by the lust of their flesh in the world they live in. In Jeremiah 4.4, 4, Jeremiah, after the people have now been kicked out of the promised land and they're getting ready to go or They're getting ready to get kicked out of the promised land and go into captivity because of their sin. Jeremiah tells them in Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, men of Judah and residents of Jerusalem. Otherwise, God says, my wrath will break out like fire and burn with no one to extinguish it because of your evil deeds. He says, you've got to let your heart be cut away. And we try to guard our heart. We try to make deals with God. We don't want him to take away good things or touch good things that that we like and just leave it the way it is. And God's like, no, I want to do something greater in your life, but you've got to let me in to do my work. Romans 2, 28 in the New Testament, Paul says this, for a person is not a Jew who is not one outwardly. And true circumcision is, is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. That man's praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, if you want to know if God is for you, it's about the heart. Circumcision is simply the outward expression. And just because you've been circumcised doesn't mean you're right before God, because you have to ask the question, why did you let him? cut you to deal with your heart? Is your heart changed or or are you circumcised in this day and age? And then you just go about doing whatever you want saying, well, I'm circumcised. So God's for me. I can do whatever I want. Can I just tell you that even today we have a Christianity in many places that that's kind of what it's presented, that you can just accept Christ. You can get baptized, which is the new circumcision. We'll see in a minute that God has given us under the new covenant because the old covenant has been fulfilled. And then we think, well, I can just do whatever I want. That is so wicked. That is not a heart for what God wants. It's not a heart for him to know what he desires. It's just a heart to use him. In Colossians 2.11, it says, you were also circumcised in him. That's Christ, Jesus. This is Paul writing to the New Testament church under the new covenant that Jesus made. And no longer is it a covenant of circumcision of the flesh because Christ died on the cross. He gave his flesh, his full body for us. So we don't need to be circumcised physically anymore because we have Christ who is our ultimate death, burial, and resurrection. So he says, you are circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands. See, Paul's writing to this church in Colossia. These are Gentiles, and he's saying, look, you don't need to be circumcised because you've been circumcised spiritually from the heart by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of the Messiah, that is, the one who saves, Yahweh who saves, the Savior. Verse 12 of Colossians 2, having been buried with 
Jesus, him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God. In other words, you put your faith in God to do the work, not yourself. And then he says, who raised him from the dead. So you can trust him with your life. And when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, trespasses is your sin, the things you've done wrong that you can't make a deal with God about, they have to be paid for. Someone has to die. Something has to to, to be done away with to pay the price for what's been done. And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, in other words, you're cold, you don't want to deal with it. It says in, in ver, following in verse 13, he says, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He forgives us because of what he did. And then he says, verse 14 in Colossians 2, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. He literally nailed his flesh to the cross to be on display, just like circumcision in the hill of foreskins. And it would have been a public display. Jesus was publicly gave his entire body so that we, he paid the payment that we owed and the debt that we owed. And if we truly believe that it should change our hearts completely on how we see the world and on how we see God, how we see his wrath, his justice, his love, his mercy, it should change everything everything in our life. And that's why these Amorite and Canaanite kings wouldn't submit. They wouldn't submit because they weren't willing to give up what they had. They weren't willing to surrender to the God who was where these Israelites were willing to give their lives. In Joshua 5.10, it says, while the Israelites camped at Gilgal, the rolling away, on the plains of Jericho, they kept the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month. The day after Passover, they ate the unleavened bread and roasted grain from the produce of the land. And the day after they ate from the produce of the land, the manna ceased. Since there was no more manna for the Israelites, they ate from the crops of the land of Canaan that year. You see, used to in the wilderness, every morning they would get up and the manna would be on the ground, the bread of life. Jesus is called the bread of life. That bread would be on the ground like dew and they would have to gather it for the day and then it would rot at the end of the day and the next day they would depend on God to bring his bread again. That's why when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, he's referring back to, we just need to know that God's gonna give us what we need for today like he did back then for them. Now they're in the promised land and now They have all this produce they didn't have in the desert. See, they couldn't grow anything in the desert, in the wilderness when they were wandering. They were wandering. They couldn't wait for crops to grow. So God had to provide for them. But now they've gotten on the other side. They've been obedient. They're walking into the promised land. And for the first time in 40 years, the manna stops and there's all this produce. They can eat from the land. I mean, what a Passover that would have been. They're still not eating the Passover lamb at this point, as far as we can tell. It said they had the roasted grain and the produce of the land, but they haven't had a Passover lamb since 40 years ago. And yet now they get to celebrate Passover. So here they are, 
They've consecrated themselves before they crossed the Jordan. They followed through with circumcision as a public display. And now they're having a festival. They're gathering together to feast and to praise God for his Passover, which is when the angel of death passed over the death they deserved and the blood on their doorpost. God saw the covering and passed over them, just like he passed over his people's sin when they covered the Ark of the Covenant. And just like when Christ passed over us. His blood covers us so that when God the Father looks to carry out His wrath, He sees His covering over us. That's what they were celebrating. I mean, these people are showing that they are committed to what God wants in their lives. In Joshua 5.13, he says, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and asked, "Uh, are you for us or for our enemies? See, there's the title of the message today. So all this happens. They've dedicated themselves, and all of a sudden, Joshua comes face to face with this incredible man standing in front of him with a sword drawn. That is, that is a sword out ready to fight. And he asks a good question, like, are you for us or for our enemies? And look at verse 14 in Joshua 5. It says, neither, he replied. Neither. I mean, is that not confusing? But guys, that should be our response in our world, that when people want to want us to get on their side, that we pause and we say, you know what? I want what God wants. I want the gospel and only he can save. If we take care of every social issue we have, if we take care of every financial issue we have, we could try to take care of all the issues we have. But if we haven't taken care of the issue of sin and standing in rebellion of God, instead of surrendering to him, when we stand before him one day, we're in trouble because he is a warrior with a drawn sword. And he is not for us or for what we want. He is for his glory. And if we've submitted to him, then we receive the covering of his glory. And he says, neither, he replied in verse 14, I have come now as commander of the Lord's army. Then, and that's Yahweh's army. Then Joshua, Yahweh saves, bowed with his face to the ground in worship and asked him, what does the Lord want to say to his servant? Look at Joshua's response. He calls himself a servant, a slave. He's like, what, what do you want from me? I surrender. My, my, my whole body is yours. We circumcised before, but, but now my, I surrender to you. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Listen, Moses had this same experience at the burning bush. This is now Joshua's experience of seeing God for the first time. And he takes off his feet, he, which means he can't run away, rocky ground. Like to take your covering of your feet off mean you could be in trouble. He takes off his sandals and he is exposed and he's standing right there. Now, Some say, who is this commander of the armies? Well, I believe, like a lot of scholars, that this is actually Jesus. This is what's called a theophany. It's when Jesus appears before he actually came in the Old Testament. That Multiple times, Jesus appears because he is the image of the invisible God, Colossians says. That whenever the Godhead wants to reveal itself to mankind, it's Jesus that we see because God the Father is in an unapproachable light. And so it's Jesus that that we have access to the Father, that that He is the one that we go through. When He was walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, the reason I think it's Jesus is because, number one, whenever angels tried to be worshipped, they would tell the person, don't worship me. 
get up. I'm just a servant like you. This army commander doesn't say that. Also, Jesus, at his temptation, Satan said that Jesus had command over the angels of heaven. Jesus said he had command over the angels. The religious leaders, when Jesus was on the cross, told him, if you really are the Messiah, then call your angels from heaven. So they even believed that the Messiah would bring angels. And Revelation says that Jesus will come back with his armies and be leading his armies. So I absolutely believe that this is Jesus himself standing before Joshua. So Yahweh who saves Joshua is standing before Jesus, and Jesus is the Greek name for Joshua, Yahweh saves. So Yahweh saves is bowing before Yahweh saves, because Yahweh, God, is getting ready to save them. I mean, this is a cool imagery. And again, Joshua realizes, wow, you aren't for me or us or for our enemies. So he bows and says, you know what? I don't care about whether you're from, I just want you. I just want to be right before you. I I just want to hear from you. I'm your servant. I don't care about them. I don't care about the enemies. I just care that you and I are good so that I can be your servant. In Joshua 6, 1, it goes on, it says this. Now, Jericho was strongly fortified because of the Israelites. No one leaving or entering. The Lord said to Joshua, look, I have handed Jericho, its king, and its fighting men over to you. Now, I don't know about you, but I read this and I think, wait, you've handed them over, but the city's locked down. How is that handing them over? There's a, they have, Jericho had two double walls. Rahab lived between the two walls. If you ever look at a map of Jericho, they had these two giant, giant walls. So if you got through the first wall and got to the second one, there was a problem. You were trapped. And then they could just shoot you and kill you. Jericho was probably the most fortified city of its day. And it was built on a hill. So you had to get past two giant walls, walls wide enough that two chariots could drive side by side on top of these walls. That's how wide these walls were. They were huge. This city was the impenetrable city and God is getting ready to show the world that he is Yahweh. And what decision will you make about that? He's getting ready to show the world that he is God and that he is with these Israelites. But man, at this point, you got to be looking and saying, if you've handed it to us, why is it so protected and locked down? Joshua 6, 3, it says, march around the city with all the men of war, circling the city one time. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven rams, ram's horn trumpets in front of the ark. But on the seventh day, march around the city seven times while the priests blow the trumpets. When there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear the sound, have all the people give a mighty shout. Then the city wall will collapse and the people will advance, each man straight ahead. Man, I love this. Like, this is the worst battle plan ever. So we're just going to go each day and march around the city one time and go home and not say a word. And then we're going to do that six days. The seventh day, we're going to march around seven times and then we're just going to blow a bunch of horns and then scream and then the wall's just going to collapse and then... We're going to, like, all the walls are collapsed. So that's why he says all the men are going to advance straight ahead. There's no entrance. You're not going to need an entrance because the walls are going to be down. He goes on, Matthew 5, you know, we, we can see this. Uh, and, and then it goes on in Joshua 6, sorry. Uh, Joshua 6 goes on, it says this. 
Joshua, son of Nun, summoned the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and have seven priests carrying seven trumpets in front of the Ark of the Lord. He said to the people, Move forward, march around the city, and have the armed troops go ahead of the Ark of the Lord. After Joshua had spoken to the people, seven priests carrying seven trumpets before the Lord moved forward and blew the trumpets. The Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. So they're actually taking the Ark now again, like into battle, which that's the most prized thing. You don't want that. That's, that's dangerous. To, if you lose, you, you lose the ark. And, and it's a valuable thing. People could see the gold ark and be like, man, I want that gold. But see, this is, they're following what God's asked them to do, even though this seems like the most asinine battle plan ever. Verse uh, 10 says this, But Joshua had commanded the people, Do not shout or let your voice be heard. Can you imagine trying to keep everybody quiet? Like, don't speak. And can you imagine how weird that would have been that Jericho's getting ready for a battle and then all of a sudden the Israelites just come up, they march around the city, and they go home. And you're like, what are they doing? Then they come up and they're in battle gear and they march around quietly and they go home. And they do this six days. It says, don't let one word come out of your mouth until the time I say shout. Then you are to shout. I mean, this is amazing. And if you think about the suspense, this would have been crazy. They march, they march, and then on the seventh day, they keep marching in circles, and then all of a sudden, these horns blow and this scream. That would have caused some severe panic. That that would have been scary to hear. And then at the same time that happens, an earthquake happens to bring down the walls. Verse 11 of chapter 6 says, So the ark of the Lord was carried around the city, circling it once. They returned to the camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early next morning. The priests took the Ark of the Lord, and the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets marched in front of the Ark of the Lord. While the trumpets were blowing, the armed troops went in front of them, and the rear guard went behind the Ark of the Lord. On the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. For six days. Verse 15, early on the seventh day, they started at dawn and marched around the city seven times in the same way. Now it's a little bit different. That was the only day they marched around the city seven times. After the seventh time, the priest blew the trumpets and Joshua, Yahweh saves, said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city, but the city and everything in it are set apart to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and everyone with her in the house that she's in will live because she hid the men we sent. Remember Rahab earlier, the prostitute, she hid the men and she protected God's men and asked if God would have a relationship with her and they invited her into a covenant with their God. And so here Joshua gives the orders, you're going to shout and they do it. Then it goes on in verse 18, but keep yourself from the things set apart. This is critical because the next uh, chapter we go into, you need to know this part for next week. It says, but keep yourselves from the things set apart. In other words, don't grab the things that your flesh wants. You're going to go into the city and see things you want. Don't take them. They're not yours. God will provide for us. We don't need to take any spoils, which is really weird because in these days, that's what armies did. He said, or you will be set apart for destruction as well. So, so if you take stuff that's like Jericho is to be annihilated. We're going to show that we depend on God and we're not trying to come in here and get anything from anybody. 
We're not trying to take what you've got. We're not trying to get what you've got. If you'll surrender and move, or if you'll surrender to Yahweh, we'll get rid of everything you have, but we'll let you live. That's the message. That's the message of the gospel where Jesus says, if you surrender to me, if you will embrace me and you will surrender your life to me, it's mine now, but I'll give you a new life. We'll we'll kill the old man, the Bible says, and you'll be born again. It's the same picture. And then it goes on and it says, um, if you take any of those things, you will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and bring disaster on it. So no, not only are you going to hurt yourself, you're going to hurt others. And this is what sin does. When we don't listen to God and we choose to do what we want to do, it always affects others. We think it doesn't. We think it's no big deal, but it always, always affects people around you long-term because it affects you. It causes you to be a different person than the person you were created to be if you know Christ. And as a result, you end up treating people and using people and using their things instead of giving your life to them. In verse 19 of Joshua 6, it says, For all the silver and gold and the articles of the bronze and iron are dedicated to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasury. So everything else is annihilated. But these are the things that will go into the treasury. Verse 20, So the people shouted and the trumpets sounded. When they heard the blast of the trumpet, the people gave a great shout and the wall collapsed. The people advanced into the city, each man straight ahead, because there's no walls, and they captured the city. They completely destroyed everything in the city with the sword, every man and woman, both young and old, and every ox, sheep, and donkey. You know, we live in a culture that doesn't want to talk about the justice and the wrath of Almighty God that he's not for us or our enemies. He is God. And the fact that we don't deserve what these people in Jericho have happened to them is because of what God did for us. What Jesus, Yahweh who saves, paid the price on the cross for us. And we should be willing to to get rid of anything in our life that keeps us from full surrender and worship of him. That it's all his and what he says we should do with it. At this point, he says completely destroy. Now, this can look very unloving. You know, in, Je- in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount in verse 43. It says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. By the way, Jesus doesn't say we shouldn't call people enemies. We should know who is an enemy and who is a friend, who is in the faith and who is not in the faith. The Bible says we're to be discerning. We're, we're to look at people's fruit. We don't know if they're truly saved and struggling or if they're not saved and and they're just acting like they're not saved. They don't know God. They don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. But we are, Jesus doesn't say don't call them enemies. And then in verse 44 of Matthew 5, he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing that's out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Instead, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect. In other words, perfectly love how God says to love. And can I just tell you, God's wrath and justice are loving. If you've ever been wronged and you see evil being done and you wonder, God, why won't you do something about that evil? That's the heart of God. 
that God is going to do something about the evil. He sent his son to, to pay for the consequences of the evil in us. And he says he's going to send Yahweh saves his son, Jesus, again one day will come back to do away with evil, to totally annihilate everything. And Jericho is a picture of this, that someday in Revelation, we'll read this in a second, when, when Jesus comes back, he is going to get rid of any, everything and build new, not build on old stuff, but it's going to be a new living world, a new city. Not built with the old things, but with new things. See, that's, and all the iron and everything else, those are things that will be melted down by fire and purified and refashioned into articles that can be useful for God. That the fire purifies and makes things useful. See, that's like heaven and, and hell, that we're going to be purified. See, that. This is just a picture. God is consistent through his entire word that it's all about him. And if we'll just say it's all about you, help us to be all about you, then he will come into us. He will circumcise our hearts. He will, he will be for himself in us. And he will change the hearts of our enemies. And here in Matthew, Jesus says, under this new covenant, I, I tell you to love them. But can I tell you, sometimes loving people is very just and wrathful. See, God doesn't stop doing love to carry out his wrath. So in Jericho, when they did this, it was an act of love. These people were corrupting everyone around them. These people were abusing and using everyone around them. They were using all the things around them for their own good and own purposes, not anything for God. And just remember, that God has been loving these people enough to 600 years ago tell them that that's the land I'm coming for. 400 years in captivity, 40 years in the wilderness, Jericho, the Red Sea, all the miracles that God's done. These people know about all the things that God of the Bible, Yahweh, has been telling them and they've rejected it and now it's judgment time. They marched around the city six days and every day they could have opened the gates and said, we surrender, we bow, we, we take off our sandals. We're on holy ground. Your God is God and we're done. They could have done that, but they, their hardened, uncircumcised hearts wouldn't allow them to do that. And so God has no other option but to come in and destroy. And isn't it interesting that Rahab and anyone that listened to Rahab, that believed her message about Yahweh who is coming and his people who were coming, were saved. They were spared. See, Revelation eleven fifteen says this, the seventh angel blew his trumpet. Interesting, it's the seventh angel on the seventh day. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God. Does this sound familiar? What we're reading? saying, we thank you, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you've begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints and to those who fear your name. Remember, in the end of chapter four, he said, this is so that everyone knows and that you may fear. And it says, fear your name, both great, small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. God's sanctuary in heaven was open. The city was open. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his sanctuary. This is the end of our Bible. The end of the book, all these imageries are coming back. 
And it says there were flashes of lightning, rumblings of thunder, and an earthquake and severe hail. Listen, they found the city of Jericho. And do you know what happened? They are absolutely certain, archaeologists are, that an earthquake happened at some point and the city walls fell outward. See, when a city is sieged and you attack a city, you push the walls in. You don't pull giant walls out. You bombard them and the walls cave in. When they found Jericho, the earthquake caused the city walls to fall out, which means the the people of God would have just climbed right up the walls and went right in. See, that's amazing. So either this Jericho story is is a farce or it really is a declaration of Almighty God. Wow. And in Revelation, it says he's going to come again. The trumpets are going to sound. We're going to bow. We're going to shout for his glory. And he is going to come back in loving wrath to finally deal with with the evil and pain and suffering that so many people ask, where is God in the midst of my pain and suffering? Listen, he hasn't forgotten. He's been patient. They, they were waiting 600, 400, 40 years. We've been waiting. God knows the pain of his people. He just asks if we will point people to an inheritance that he will give or will we try to solve it ourselves. Will we make wrath our own or will we do what he asks us to do and believe what he says is loving at the moment that we need to do? In Joshua 6, it says, Joshua said to the two men who had scouted the land, go to the prostitute's house and bring the woman out of there and all who are with her, just as you promised her. So the young men who had scouted went in and brought out Rahab and her father, mother, brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her whole family and settled them outside the camp of Israel. This is amazing. I said this in the message a couple of weeks ago, but it's amazing that they, Rahab was content to not have to, not be in the promised land, just to be on the outskirts was, was enough for her. And the Bible says in Revelation that someday God is going to give his allotted lands back to the tribes of Israel when the new city Jerusalem comes down out of heaven in the book of Revelation, that they're going to have it. And then the rest of the world will be the nations that, that we have now an allotted inheritance in all of creation, but that inheritance is theirs for God is going to still complete his promise and show his glory, not because of how great they are, but because he is a God of his promises, his inheritance, and his covenant. Hebrews 11, 1, it's called the faith chapter, and it says this, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For our ancestors won God's approval by it. It's not like they bartered with God. They just had faith in him. They believed he was who he says he is and his promises were real. Even if they never saw them or experienced them, they didn't, they kept believing in him. And he says, verse three, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by God's command. In other words, we didn't create it. It's his command. So that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. In other words, God creates out of nothing something because he's God. He is that creative and imaginative. If you jump down to verse 30, after Hebrews 11 gives a bunch of names, it says this, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being encircled by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute received the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. So when the New Testament writer of Hebrews is writing about faith, They reference back the faith of these Israelites had to go through this process, to cross the Jordan, to be circumcised, to celebrate the Passover. No more manna is coming, so now they have to trust God to feed them. They have to march around the city. All of these acts 
are incredible acts that just don't make any sense unless God really is God and he's really telling them to do this. That, that's our God. He puts us in those kind of positions so that he can get all the glory, so that our enemies are afraid and they can see who God is and we can be in awe of who he is and know that he will fulfill his promises. Joshua 6, 24 says, They burned up the city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron in the treasury of the Lord's house. They were being obedient. However, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's household, and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho, and she lives in Israel to this day. So when Joshua was written, Rahab's still living, still happy, still being blessed because of the covenant that she made to believe Yahweh was God and to leave behind her career, her city, everything, to go live in a tent and go live differently and live with God's people. Wow, that's incredible. Rahab knew God was for himself. In 26, it says, At that time Joshua imposed this curse. The man who undertakes the rebuilding of the city Jericho is cursed before the Lord. He will lay its foundations at the cost of his firstborn. He will set up its gates at the cost of his youngest. And the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Yahweh saves is becoming famous, just like someday Jesus comes and Yahweh saves becomes famous, and Jesus' name is still respected as the Yahweh who saves today. And this curse that Joshua gives is actually fulfilled. Ahab, King Je- Ahab and Queen Jezebel try to rebuild the city of Jericho. You can read this in 1 Kings 16, 34. It says, In his days, Hill of Bethel built Jericho and laid its foundations at the cost of Abram's, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, son of Nun. So someone tried to rebuild Jericho and they lost their oldest and youngest son. They didn't listen. Romans 8, 28 says this. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Verse 35. Of Romans 8. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. Our flesh is dying. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him, through Jesus, Yahweh who saves, who loved us. For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And remember, that means is in the Messiah, who is Yahweh, who saves, who is Yahweh. That's what Christ Jesus as Lord means. When Paul's writing Romans 8, he gives us the confidence to know that we can believe that God will work all things together for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose, not their own purposes, not trying to please everybody. But do we really know what God's purposes are? Do we really know what he has to say about things? Do we really understand his word and do we believe it and live it? See, these are the questions of our day. And we keep getting caught up and we keep getting distracted from telling people about our God because we're fighting all these battles for an inheritance we can't provide for ourselves. That he's the one in his grace, his forgiveness, his his power has to bring it. 
And instead of trying to to get everybody together, we need to be crying out to God, consecrating ourselves, allowing Him to circumcise our heart, being baptized by water now. Instead of we need to declare His greatness. Instead of saying, "Look at me, my God's for me," we say, "Look at Him." because of what he's done. And I just get the benefit and it's amazing. And you can have it too, like Rahab, or you can be led to destruction if you continue to ignore and continue to ignore because there's coming a day when the debt has to be paid. Let me ask you, are you someone that keeps trying to get God to be for you? Are you someone that keeps looking at other people, comparing yourself and thinking, well, God must be for them, not for me. How about you stop focusing on yourself and and realize that that God is for himself and God sent himself, he sent his son to pay the price for you, to show you that he wants you to be a part of his family. He wants you to be invited in and not face the consequences that are coming one day because of sin and death. And for those of us who are believers, would we take seriously declaring the message of God Would we take our marching orders and would we be willing to be silent when we need to be silent and shout when we need to shout, not for issues of our day, but for the gospel that saves, that it would be all about him. That's my prayer. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this message. I thank you for how you're changing lives. We pray that you would change us, circumcise our hearts. Would we not look at how to get you for us or think that you're for them, but would we just be about you? and obey what you've asked us to do in your word. Lord, we have time. You've given us time. Help us to follow you. We pray all of this in the Messiah, who is Yahweh, who saves, who is Yahweh's name. Amen. Next week, we're going to dive in because when we get to the first chapter of Joshua 7, it says, the Israelites, however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. So they didn't do what they were supposed to do, and there's some consequences to that. I pray that this week you would check your heart and go before the Lord and prepare your heart for the message next week and get your heart ready to to hear from Him this week. Thanks for joining us. See you on Sunday as we gather together. May peace be upon you. In His name, amen.